All right. Hey, good morning, church. Great to be with you guys today. Look, every time we get together, we like to shout out all of our campuses that are joining us right now. So we've got uh, Thomasville Campus, we have Daphne, we have Midtown Mobile, and now we have this incredible thing happening in Robertsdale, which is just blowing us away, and then all of our friends online. So we are excited to be here today, and we're going to continue the Apostles' Creed series. We've been in this for a few weeks, looking at the Apostles' Creed, and we realized, we, we, didn't, we didn't know it, it came to our attention that there was com- some confusion about what we've actually been teaching. I want to clear it up now. When we say Apostles' Creed, we're not talking about this guy right here. This is not the guy we're talking about. There we go. How, how many of you remember that? Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. How many of you know exactly who that is right there? Come on now. So, uh, and, and you know what? Brother was in shape, wasn't he? That guy, he was in shape. Uh, so that's not who we're talking about. Uh, we are talking about the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed, by the way, let me remind you, was not uh, inspired. It's not the Bible. So there's nothing holy about the Apostles' Creed. But the Apostles' Creed was based on, it was a summation of what we do believe in the Bible. So what we're using the Apostles' Creed to do is exactly what the writers of it and the, uh, the guys who formed it wanted it to be, just a guide for us to be able to know what we believe as Christians historically. Week one was all about the fact that the Apostles' Creed says over and over again, we believe these things. We believe. And then what do we believe? Well, we believe in God. And we believe in a triune God, we learned. And week one, we looked at the fact that we believe in God the Father, and our Father is great. He's close. We can call him Abba. He is our daddy, all right? But he's also almighty, the Apostles' Creed says. And I love that the Apostles' Creed does not allow us to fall into dichotomies. It says, no, no, it's both. He is close and he is overall. He is intimate with us and he is the sovereign God over all things. He is our Father. And then last week, we started talking about God the Son, okay? And that's important for us to dive into because Jesus is the Son of God, incarnate. And we looked at last week, part one of Jesus, what's the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man? And remember, the way for you to best understand it is that Jesus, when he was incarnated, he had always been the eternal Son of God, always had been, the uncreated one, okay? So he, God didn't create Jesus uh, he had always been the son, but at the incarnation 2000 years ago, he did not stop being God. He had his full God nature, but he added to himself a human nature and he forever does have that. So we now have the God man incarnate Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at last week, we looked at his humanity and his divinity. This week, we're going to look at the truth that Jesus is both savior and he is Lord. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and it's important for us to understand that he is both. He is both. Let's look at Luke 2, 10 through 11. This is when the angels announced to the world Jesus' incarnation, that the Son of God had come. And what did they say about him? Let's look. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So we should be happy that Jesus came. Verse 11, for unto you, so he came for us, is born, he was a man, born this day in the city of David, a Savior, so he's Savior, but he's not just Savior, he is Christ, Messiah, and Lord. Notice the first time that that heaven lets the world know he's here, it makes it real clear. He's not just Savior, he's Lord and King. And he's not just Lord and King, he is Savior. So we don't have a tyrant, we also have a savior, but we don't just have a sentimental 
uh, dying Jesus on the cross. We also have a king. He is both, and real Christianity, for all of the history of Christianity, believe these things. The Apostles' Creed points out, he's both Savior and Lord. Let's dive into that. So write it down. Jesus was announced as our Savior and our Lord. Both. It's very important that we understand that. We're going to dive into that truth today. Because we, we tell you each week, what we're learning on Sunday morning should impact Monday morning, right? Sunday morning impacts Monday morning. So deep theological truth like what we're talking about should change how we live, change everything about us, okay? So again, we want to give this visual each week as we're walking through the Trinity, and this graphic may help you. It always helps me to see a picture to help me understand God is, when we say God, we mean this. We mean the triune God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father's not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Son's not the Spirit. The Spirit's not the Son. The Spirit's not the Father. The Father's not the Spirit, but they the three are God. They share the deity. They share the essence of God. That's why Jesus could say, when you look at me, you're looking at the Father. Remember that? Jesus said, they're like, will we ever see the Father? He goes, have you not been with me for three years? He says, when you look at me, you're looking at the Father. How could he say, how, how could he say me and the Father are one? How? Because they share the Trinity essence, the essence of God. Okay, And you go, man, my brain is hurting, Pastor Chris. And I'm like, that's good. That's good. Our brain should hurt a little bit when we're at church. Because you can't just box God up into a neat little box that we can understand. We are finite. He is infinite. But that does not mean that as finite creatures, we cannot appreciate and wonder and stand in awe of and understand so much about our infinite God. Because he has revealed himself to us. He says, I want you to know some things about me. In fact, I want you to know a lot about me. In fact, I want you to know enough about me that you can love me and have a relationship with me. Isn't that good news? So Jesus was announced as our Savior and our Lord. Let's look first at the fact that Jesus is our Savior. And we should be grateful that he is our Savior. Jesus said about himself, for the Son of Man, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. A few things happening there. First of all, he seeks us. I know you may think you're the one that went and found Jesus. No, Jesus found you. The Bible says he stands at the door and knocks. And let me make clear today. Jesus knocks at your door. You didn't invite him to your house. You're not, you, no, one, no sinner wakes up and goes, you know what? I think I want to invite Jesus over. No, we are sinners who are pursued by Jesus. It's mysterious, but it's awesome. And every one of you in this room who, who are an authentic Christian, every one of you joining us at a campus right now, if you are a Christian, it's because Jesus knocked on your door. And we're thankful for the pursuing Christ, aren't we? Who pursues us. But he came to save us. Jesus came to save the lost. And let me tell you, both Savior and Lord are potentially offensive to us. Both Savior and Lord are offensive. Let's start with the offense of him being our savior. It's offensive for some. If he becomes your savior, not offensive anymore. True Christians of all time gladly embrace that Jesus is our savior, but it is offensive to those who do not believe that. Why? Because I don't need someone to save me. I don't need anyone to save me. It's funny, I, I, I love sports and I grew up in South Mississippi, so uh, when I was in high school uh, winning three straight MVPs was Brett Favre. And everyone in South Mississippi loved Brett Favre. Everybody loves Brett Favre. Like, man, that guy Moses on grass. You can see Brett mowing grass. I mean, still to this day. Just ride to Hattiesburg, see Brett Favre mowing grass. We love Brett Favre, you know. 
Okay. So Brett Favre's a great quarterback. But I remember, so Brett was getting a little older, and every year they kept getting him weapons in the draft. But this happens to all great quarterbacks. Instead of getting this one year, instead of getting Brett Favre, a new wide receiver, or a new running back, or a new person to block for him, protect him, they went and got this guy out of California, a quarterback by the name of Aaron Rodgers. And Brett wasn't happy. Uh-uh. Why? Now watch this. Because the very presence of Aaron Rodgers in the Green Bay facility said something. What was it saying? We think we're going to need a new quarterback sooner than later. Oh, they weren't, they weren't drafting quarterbacks when he was winning three straight MVPs. They were just wide receivers. But now, getting older, uh, he's talking retirement, numbers had gone down. So Aaron Rodgers shows up and his very presence said something. It was offensive because Brett Favre's going, why do you need that guy? I'm the best quarterback ever. Here I am. No, no, no. Aaron Rodgers is here because they know it ain't going to be long, Brett. And all the great quarterbacks go through this. Now, now, this is why Jesus is offensive to many. Because you go, now why would God need to come to earth? Why do all that? Here's why. Because that's how bad you needed a Savior. Amen. That's why. That's why he went through all of that. Because it was the only, that's how bad off we were without Jesus. And if you're without Jesus today, it's how bad off you are. And see, tell, we have tried to just pamper people now in modern Christianity. We're like, we don't want to offend anyone. We want everybody to come and be happy. Our job at church is get everyone in. And the happier we make everyone, if everybody leaves, they're like, oh, that was great today. I leave church and I feel like I'm special and everyone's wonderful. But, but look, the gospel is offensive until it is received as truth. It's offensive. We need a savior? I'm so bad I need a savior? Yes. So dead you need someone to rescue you? Yes. Yes, Jesus came to save us. Now, Paul writes in Colossians some really powerful words. I, I can't get around. Uh, I say this a lot because I'm a Bible nerd, but man, I love these verses. So today we're going to spend some time in Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And he's going to describe for you why it's important that you understand that Jesus is both Savior and Lord with incredible language. So Colossians 2, 13 through 15, he describes Savior Jesus and what he did for us. Let's read it. He said, and you, everybody say, that's me. I hear you at all the campuses. I can hear you all the way from Thomasville. And you, he's talking about Christians. He's saying, those of you, look at his next line, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Do any, does anyone in this room and all of the rooms and online, do any of you remember when you were dead in your trespasses? You remember what that felt like? You remember when you were a grave walker? You didn't have Jesus. You were a slave to your flesh. He says, all of you who, who were that, you now, something's happened. If you're a Christian, God has made alive together you with him. He's given you life. And here's how he did it. He has forgiven us all our trespasses. I love this language. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does that mean? It, mean, it means it was a legit list. What that means is it was legal. So I think we read that with the devil made that list. The devil didn't make that list. You made that list. Don't blame it on him. It was the legal holiness standards of God 
that showed that we all had fallen short of his glory. It's a, it's a legal document in the spiritual realm. Now watch this. He canceled that debt that stood against us, legal demands, and here's how he did it. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That language. Such power. And look at verse 15. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Who is that? Well, Ephesians 6.12 tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That means he's talking about Satan and all of hell. That's what he's talking about there. When Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame. He shamed all of hell by what he did. How did he do it? By triumphing over them in Christ. That language is so much, we just got to dive into that for a second. Now, let me tell you what happened when, when they nailed Jesus to the cross. Remember, he's human and divine, right? So there were physical things happening and spiritual things happening, right? Okay, that's what Paul's talking about here. So when the Romans nailed him to the cross, you all know, we've talked about it, the scientific side of what happened to Jesus. It was bad. It was real bad. And the Romans were the best at it. Okay, but one thing they would do after they tortured a guy and nailed him to a cross, as horrific that that is, while he's still writhing in unbelievable, unimaginable pain, laying there before they lift this cross in the air, there one more thing they'd do, one last little shot, is they would put a sign on that cross. They put on it, here's why this guy is being executed. And they did it to Jesus. You remember that? They did it in multiple languages because there were lots of people there for Passover. They're going to nail him to the cross right on the side of the road so everybody can see it. So on there, they go, this is the king of the Jews. What were they saying? They were saying to everyone who walked by, here's what happens to people in Rome who act like they are kings. They were just joking when they put that on the screen. <laughs> I can bring it right back. Now watch this. So they nail that sign. Now that's a physical sign, right? Physical. They nail that sign to his cross. This is what happens when you claim to be a king, not a king. We're going to prove to you he's not brutal. Rome, and they lift that cross in the air and drop it in the hole, and there he is, and there's the sign. But Paul tells us there was something else going on. There was another sign. There was another list. That was the list that was not legit of what Rome said Jesus had done wrong, and here's why he's going to die on this cross. But there was another list, a spiritual list. And this list is longer than you can imagine. It's billions upon billions upon billions of stuff on the spiritual list that Jesus spiritually nailed to the cross. And what is that list? It's the list of every sin that every believer in Christ would ever commit, had ever committed, and will ever commit into the future. Every sin ever committed by every person was on that list. And Jesus took that list and he nailed it to the cross, eradicating it for all who would believe in him. That's what Paul wants you to see. So don't be just sentimental about the cross. Oh, look at poor Jesus dying. No, I want you to go, that's the king of glory nailing my sin debt to the cross so that three days later when he rises from the grave and seals the whole thing, he has the authority to say to all of us, there is therefore no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, I don't have a sin debt anymore. The list doesn't exist. It's gone. It's unbelievable what God has done for us in the gospel. Now, how many of you are in this room, in all of our rooms, how many of you as Christians are still ashamed of some stuff back there in your life? How many of you still deal with stuff that's on that list I just talked about? You still feel ashamed, right? How many of you would be honest with me and, 
admit that sometimes your enemy, Satan, and his minions will try to resurrect that list. I think it happens all the time, right? Like you're parenting your kids, you're trying to parent your kids, Satan never whisper and go, you can't tell that kid not to do that. You did that way more. You can't tell that kid not to do that. You can't tell your daughter to remain pure. You didn't. You can't tell your son to be a young man of integrity. You weren't. And he pulls the list out. You can't act like you're a good husband. You remember what you did 10 years ago? You can't act like you got a good marriage now. Do you remember that rough patch you had for those five years? You had to go to counseling and all that. And and he pulls the list out, right? But all Christians for all time can look back at Colossians and go, have you forgotten that that list doesn't exist anymore? And that the king who erased my debt also made a mockery of you and all of hell when he died on the cross. I don't have a sin debt anymore. I don't have a list anymore. It's gone. That's what Jesus has done for us. So yes, as Christians for 2,000 years, we say he is our savior and it is not offensive to us. No, real Christians, we embrace the fact that Jesus is our savior. Amen, church? That's what we believe. So Jesus removed our sin debt, gave us new life, and silenced our accuser. That's what he did on the cross. And if Jesus is your Savior, three things will happen, I believe. These are natural outflows of you seeing him as your Savior. You will first love him. Those of us who are really Christians... We will love him. The guys in the back will put that on the screen for us. So if Jesus is your savior, you will love him. You really will. That means you'll have affection for him. You won't just see him as a philosophy or some distant figure. Jesus is your savior. You will love him. Secondly, you'll be grateful to him. There's just gratitude with real Christians. Because we all read that and we go, yeah, that was me. I was dead in my trespasses. Yeah, I had a big list and I'm real glad he nailed it to the cross. We're just grateful. We're not entitled. You can't be entitled and grateful at the same time. So real Christians of all time, we love Jesus and we just become so grateful to him. And then finally, we will abide in him. That means we stay close. Jesus said, I abide you, you abide in me. Abiding in Jesus means we stay close to Jesus. One of my favorite moments as a dad ever, we went to took the boys to Disney World when they were little. We had just gotten here, I believe, as, as ministers here at Three Circle. And, and Gracie was a baby, so we couldn't take her yet. And so we had the boys. And I remember they were so excited, and we had surprised them. We get to Disney, and there's people everywhere, right? And I'll never forget, we walk in, and I got my family with me. And all of a sudden, this little hand grabs this hand of mine, like real tight. And another hand grabs this one. And I look down, and I got Cooper, like, up on my leg, like they're holding daddy's hand. And then over here, I got Gabe just a little bit taller and he's on this side of me and they're like real tight on dad. It was one, I, I, I can still remember in this, to this day, that moment going, I wish I could hold this forever because now they don't grab, like the oldest one now puts me in a headlock. Like he'll come put me in a headlock in my house. He doesn't grab my hand anymore. He's like, you want to fight? So that's it. You know, now we wrestle. But that day they were staying close to dad. It was a good moment. Jesus says to us, those who know me who are mine, I know their voice, they know mine, they abide in me. They know that they're not supposed to stay away from me. They know to get close. People have Jesus as their Savior. We abide 
in him. But make no mistake, he is not just Savior. He is also Lord and King. Kyrios, the Greeks would say. Polycarp, you may have heard that name. Polycarp was a second century pastor, bishop. And he had been mentored by John. And he was the bishop of Smyrna. And he was a big deal. So the Roman authorities decided that you had to call Caesar. The Caesar was not just a man. They decided he is a divine. And everyone in the Roman Empire must bow to him as Kyrios, which is the word for Lord. You got to call him Lord. And they said, and here's how we will make, a, make an example. Go get Polycarp. So they got Polycarp. They bring him in and they, Polycarp now is an 80-something-year-old man. And they say, you will bow to Caesar. And you will call him Kyrios. You call him Lord. And Polycarp understood what that meant. And he said, I can't do that. Because there's only one Lord. And he is not the Caesar. And he's not the president. And he's not the Russian tyrant. And he's not whoever else has come through the pages of history that claim to be an authority. Polycarp was right all those years ago when he looked the Roman Empire in the face and he said, I will not call anyone but Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, Lord. There is no other curios. There's only one Lord. And they took Polycarp and they tied him to a stake and they lit the wood on fire, but the wood happened to be too wet so it wouldn't get hot enough to kill him, so they stabbed him. And before the knife went through, Polycarp was still looking at the Roman Empire, reminding them, there is only one Lord. He is not just Savior. He's King. He is Lord. What does that mean? Well, Paul writes it in Colossians 2, 6 through 10, the same powerful language. And he says this, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, Lord, stop right there. So if you're a real Christian and he really is, notice not just Savior, but what does he say now? Lord. If he's king and he has to be, you don't, get, you don't get part of Jesus, you get all of Jesus. Get all of him. If you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, watch how blunt this is. So walk in him. Listen to Paul. Paul's saying, so you said a prayer, then walk with Jesus. So you said some words, walk with Jesus then. So you've been baptized, then walk in him. So 10 years ago, you said a prayer at a church camp. Well, then are you walking with him? Paul says, if you're a real Christian, then walk with Jesus. Paul is going right at this idea that you can say some words, get in some water, walk an aisle, and nothing change at all in your life whatsoever. Zero fruit on the limbs of your life. Paul's going right at the idea that that can be considered real Christianity. He's saying if he's really Lord, you walk with him. Verse 7, and this happens. Progressively, you become rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. Watch this. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, so he's God and man. Verse 10 is a stunning statement of who Jesus is. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
And that is why the Apostles' Creed says he ascended into heaven, because upon his ascension, the Father ceded all authority in the universe to the Son and says, you are in control, crowning him king of kings, sitting him at the right hand of the Father forever, being the administrator of authority and power for the universe. The Son of God ascended into heaven. So he has what? He's the head of all rule and authority. So if you've received Christ, then you have to receive him as Lord. And that means we walk in him. You get all of Jesus, not part of him. So this concept of Jesus as Lord or Jesus as Savior instead of being both, that's just not biblical. It's an unbiblical concept. You just won't find it in the New Testament. You just won't find that. We find it today in modern Christianity. And again, I'm not saying people can't be saved when they say a prayer or walk an aisle. I sure did. I did all of that. Everything I just said, I did. I walked an aisle, said a prayer, and got baptized. And I was really saved. You know what happened immediately? Clear signs of my salvation. Leaves started popping out on the dead limbs of my life. Fruit started, not a ton of it. It wasn't like, whoa, look at that. No, it was incremental. Sometimes it's still incremental. But there's life. There's clear. Listen, you don't get part of You can't just say, I, because here's what modern Christianity does if we're not careful. You'll say, I love Jesus as Savior because, hey, if he's canceling my debt, I like that. And I sure don't want to spend eternity in hell. Heaven sounds better. So I'll take heaven. So yeah, I like Jesus as Savior. But the Lord part, look, I like him as Savior. I don't want him telling me what to do. But kings have authority. And you can't have just part of Jesus. Like when I got married, man, Nan got all of me. She got it all. She got the good stuff and the stuff that's not so good, right? All of me moved in to the house. So my wife likes to tell me sometimes, she's like, how can you organize and visioneer huge organizations our whole marriage? But you can't keep up with socks. You can't keep up with your keys. If I take her car, I can't keep up with her keys. This is all very problematic in my marriage, right? It's like, how, how does that happen? Well, and I just go, baby, you got all of me. I'd all moved in, you know? Because you don't get part of a person. You get all that person. And, and so with Jesus, we like to compartmentalize him. Say, yeah, I'll take him as Savior. I don't want him as Lord. I'll take him as Savior. I don't want him to tell me. So here's what we end up with. We end up with people saying prayers. And claiming Jesus, but there is zero signs of a spiritual heartbeat in their life. That thing is flatlined. And you know what the final result is? You may think, well, where are you going with this, man? Is this in the Bible? Jesus said some stunning words. He said, there will be a day the whole world will stand in front of me. And there will be many, not just a few, there will be many who will stand in front of me as king and, and of the universe. And they will say, Lord Lord. They'll say the words. Look what we've done in your name. And Jesus will say to them words that no human will ever want to hear. I never knew you. I never knew you. You may have said some words, but I never knew you. So yes, there is going to be a day where this kind of false Christianity is exposed. That doesn't have to be our story. That doesn't have to be your story today. Have you believed upon the Jesus 
of the Bible who is both Savior and Lord. See, the gospel offers us a person, not an idea or a philosophy or a set of principles to follow. He, it offers us a person, a whole person, King and Savior, Lord and Savior. Some people may say, well, wait a minute. What about the thief on the cross, man? You tell me the thief on the cross had him both the Savior and Lord? He was only Savior. The thief didn't have time to make him Lord, right? Well, you got to just listen to his words. Remember what the thief said? He said to him, remember me when you enter into your, y'all remember? Your kingdom. The thief on the cross looks at Jesus and says, not only are you a savior, you're, a ki- you're the king. And you're headed somewhere. I want to go. I want to be with you. That is a clear, I know, I know it's not theologically pristine, but that's a human heart saying, I'm not in charge, you are. I'm not the boss, you are. I'm not the authority, you are. You're savior and you're, you're the king. And I believe that. I embrace that. And Jesus looks up at him and says, and that's enough. One great theologian recently said, it became famous on the internet, he said that when the thief on the cross gets to heaven, the angels are going to be talking to him about why, why are you coming into heaven? They're trying to look up all the things he did. Like, and, and finally, in frustration, they go, who told you you could come here? And the thief on the cross looks and says, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. And we're all thankful for that. Now, we don't make Jesus Lord and King. We submit to his lordship. So this whole idea of make Jesus Lord, my friends, that is so far beyond our authority. We don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus was made Lord upon his ascension into heaven when God said this is forever authority, all authority. God the Father made Jesus Lord, not us. You don't make him Lord. You just submit to his lordship. You submit to. One day we all will. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is one day. But those who will enter the kingdom say that now. We bow the knee now to him. And if Jesus is your king, three things happen. Number one, you'll submit to him. If he's Lord, we submit to him. We're not the boss anymore. We don't pull our own punches. We don't call our own shots. He does. Secondly, we glorify him. Our lives become about pointing to his greatness and who he is. And then thirdly, we'll serve him. Our lives become about serving the king, gladly, joyfully, not begrudgingly. This is what real Christianity looks like. Now, folks, if you're here today as, as pastor, I just, I just want to love you enough to tell you, folks, if you have never bowed your knee and submitted to Jesus as both Savior and Lord, you need to do that today. Don't walk out of here one more week. Don't walk out of your home or one of those campuses one more week hearing the gospel without opening the door and believing upon Jesus. For whosoever will call upon his name will be saved. Every week during the Apostles' Creed series, we're telling you, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. Please do what I could never do in a million sermons. 
and that's crack open human hearts to the reality of who you are. I pray that you'll do that today in Jesus' name. Amen.